This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Exceptionally few in number this morning. I'm, I'm told that the uh, lure of the weather was irresistible. So, uh, and uh, happy Juneteenth, everyone. Uh, it's about time we had a national event, national holiday. to commemorate one of a number of endings of the institution of chattel slavery in this country. It uh, may be easier to end the institution than it is to root out the possibility of slavery in our minds because it still exists numerous places in the world. In fact, it still exists in the United States, illegal though it is. And uh, those engaged in it are are, uh, very energetic about keeping it hidden. But at least today, we have the occasion for some acknowledgement. And uh, uh, the issue of, um, what is it, restitution? Is that the right word? Reparations. Reparations has, has been being talked about for quite a while now. And, and I don't know if it's actually happened anywhere yet. But it may happen. And to my surprise, uh, I ran across a, uh, it was like an ad uh, in the midst of another uh, YouTube video, an African-American gentleman, probably not as old as I am, but on in years, and very, very, very nice suit and tie, was, was talking about this. And I was a little shocked to discover he was disparaging the whole notion of reparations. <laughs> Wait. And it turned into a talk about, well, my father, you know, no, my grand, great-grandfather was a slave and he escaped and went to Texas and built his own life. And I'm an entrepreneur and I don't want any of that money. And it's like, okay, is this, a, is this a joke? No, it's not. He was quite serious. So... It's all kind of confusing. 
just as confusing as discovering how many African-American Republicans there are. Okay, go figure. Anyway, I wasn't intending on addressing political topics, but it just, I was so startled by this gentleman appearing, inveighing against reparations. Okay, it's a free country, we hope. So we'll see if any reparations are actually given. Meantime, uh, today, uh, shortly, there will be a, a funeral uh, at my old uh, uh, boarding school for uh, Father Stephen Keady, who is uh, only a little older than I, so I think he, he must have died rather suddenly uh, recently. And uh, when my, my friend, who is a, a, a priest, a monastic there at uh, my old school, told me of this, I had this sudden strong memory of Father Keady, although he was Brother Keady and Brother Stephen in those days. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a very, uh, very sweet, very good-hearted man, very sincere. And he taught my uh, class religion, maybe more than once, but at least one for one, whatever semester it was. And I was at that time, I think that was, this is my junior year, I was um, proclaiming Buddhism, <laughs> much to the annoyance of the uh, Catholic hierarchy there at the school. And uh, I, f I forget how it came up, but I was uh, saying something in the class about the um, mythology of uh, Buddha's mother, conceiving Buddha in a, in a kind of semi-miraculous way, sort of, uh, and how she had a dream of an, a, a white elephant, which in India does not mean a piece of furniture you can't get rid of. A white elephant is extremely auspicious. And she dreamed that it came and held a lotus and touched her side. Uh, and as you know, Buddha was not born through her vagina, but from her side. So I was relating this, and uh, I think I was, I don't know, maybe making some specious comparison with the miraculous birth of Jesus, and, and uh, Brother Stephen laughed, and I took some umbrage. And he immediately apologized. And uh, when I graduated, he uh, gave me a book. It was, um, if I remember right, uh, Nuchea Eliada's book on comparative religion. And he, he inscribed it inside, and I can't remember now. I, I kept it for years and years. I think I've lost track of it now, though. But it said something like, may God always... unfurl for you the, the path to him or something like that. So I just wanted to acknowledge his passing and uh, I was grateful for his friendship.
um, he did not seem unduly uh, alarmed by my interest in Buddhism, unlike some of the other monastics there who were horrified. Oh well. So his funeral is today. And I, um, I guess I was um, maybe remembering him, and then I remembered a, um, a famous uh, quotation uh, from the Book of Isaiah. Some of you will be familiar with. All. All seven of you, <laughs> one of you may be familiar with the book of Isaiah, one of the more fascinating books in the, uh, the Old Testament. Anyway, uh, somewhere it says, um, uh, let's see, it's, uh, how, uh, let's see, how beautiful upon the mountain uh, are the feet Of, of those who go up proclaiming peace. And uh, this reminded me of um, my teachers saying, um, he was, uh, I guess he was at Zazen at, So Koji, the, uh, the uh, Japanese congregation temple in uh, Japan down there, when uh, the, the poor uh, Japanese were inundated with all these Westerners coming to practice with Suzuki Roshi, which not everyone was happy about, as you may know. Anyway, uh, we were seeing Zazen, and he saw Suzuki Roshi walk by. And um, he, he saw his feet. And he said to himself, well, I can, uh, I can learn from this person. And uh, maybe, maybe it's quite common, but I had a very much the same experience, not so much with feet, but with my experiencing the uh, presence of someone and thinking, oh, I can learn from this person. And I definitely had that experience as Suzuki Roshi, although I don't remember seeing his feet. But I was, when I, when I saw him for Dokusan, I was so eager, looking forward to going back seeing him again and then he up and died so that didn't happen but his successor Zentatsu Baker I also had the experience so I can I can learn Dharma from that person and 
then I also, I had that experience with uh, teacher Tenshin, my teacher. I thought, I can learn Dharma from that person. And uh, then I discovered that there are actually any number of people I had that experience with. I had that conclusion. Oh, I can, I can learn from this person. And not all of them are Buddhist. And it wasn't always a feeling of, oh, I could uh, study my whole life with this person necessarily. But I, I, I had that uh, reaction to um, uh, Robert Aitken and also to Maureen Stewart, um, a couple of other people. I thought, yeah, if it, for some reason, I was where they were, I could learn Dharma from them. So I, I think maybe, um, you know, it's useful if people are, you know, feeling like they're at a point in their approach to Dharma that they would like to work with a teacher, it's maybe good if they have that, see if they have that response, like, yeah, I could learn Dharma from that person. And then, of course, as we are advised, you, you're supposed to watch and see if, you know, they uh, live up to your notion of how a Dharma teacher should be. Always remembering the uh, old Tibetan saying, the best teacher for you is the one who lives two valleys over from you. Because inevitably, some rough edges will become apparent and that's okay as long as it doesn't damage your enthusiasm for Buddha Dharma. That's not so good. So I, I ask for forgiveness for all my rough edges and I don't, um, I don't feel like it's quite right to like try and hide them. I mean, they are there, and maybe enough if one can be very careful that one does not do any harm with one's rough edges. And if one is ready to acknowledge them. The, uh, the late abbot, Zenshin Philip Whalen, had any number of rough edges, and he was quite aware of it and uh, was not concerned about hiding them either. So when I lived here with him for a year, I learned some Dharma from him too.
how, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who go up proclaiming peace. So, uh, pretty important to proclaim peace, even if, well, uh, every moment of every day, we are not entirely successful in uh, bringing that to the world. On the one hand, that's our kind of that's our vow, and on the other, we're also uh, encouraged to be ourselves. And well, what if yourself is you know sort of a gnarly person? Well, then, potentially at least, the advantage of practicing in a sangha can become evident because practicing with a sangha, those rough edges do tend to get a bit smoother. And that can be a long process and not always agreeable, but it's pretty effective. And of course, uh, I don't know what the the original uh, source of the um, the recommendation that we just be ourselves. I don't know where that comes from exactly. But not not only um, our our teachers tell us that. But um, I think I remember hearing that from my parents. Uh, I was complaining about having to go to a, like a dance. I, like, I don't want to go to this dance. You'll do fine. Just be yourself. Now, where did they get that? I don't know. I don't know where that came from, but. Yeah, it was okay, advice. So for us, it's a little bit of a, it's an interesting wrinkle there because for us, our self, you know, is not some little treasure that we hang on to and polish up and make look real nice. That's not what that's about. This, this morning in Sazen, once again, I was amazed at the, uh, the self arising and passing away 
in the midst of all the phenomena of my experience. And for us, the, the great exercise of being ourselves is sitting upright in stillness. In, in that, in the midst of that practice, the nature of our, uh, what you could call our boundaries, is revealed. Uh, one of uh, contemporary philosopher Kim Wilber's books is entitled "No Boundary." I read that at Tassajara when I first went her. It's quite, quite interesting. And the, the last part of that book features uh, Suzuki Roshi. We don't exactly say, or we might say no boundary, but only in certain contexts. We mean more something like the boundary is fluid, like the surface of water, not like a wall, not like some sort of box that we live in. And because it's like water, it flows into other boundaries. Buddha noticed that the self, so-called, it's not a box that we live in. But seeing it that way, seeing it as a box that we live in, is the source of suffering. So he brought us his insight that that's not how it is and encouraged everyone to see for him or herself. And in the process of acquainting ourselves with that self-same insight. We, we also had the practice of going up upon the mountain, proclaiming peace. Joining the many 
bodhisattvas who uh, who have that practice. This uh, changes our relationship to dukkha, to the profound sense of suffering at the root of sentient beings' shaky position. I think I can say accurately that it was dukkha that turned me towards Buddha Dharma. And um, at some point, I, uh, I, I noticed that I wasn't actually doing Buddha Dharma. It was just like reading and thinking about it. And uh, then I discovered uh, Sazen and that you could actually do Buddha Dharma. And that changed my relationship to Dukkha. Pretty, pretty important. My, uh, my parents had a, a friend, a, uh, um, a, a woman of, of their era, more or less. And uh, so I, I encountered her from time to time. Um, She would uh, be at, at dinners that my my parents were hosting, or at uh, some other other family friends, and she was uh, she was a very charming person, um, and uh, at some point. Um, I was already an adult, and her husband died rather suddenly. And uh, she was quite devoted to him. So that was a serious blow. And she um, she was extremely funny, which was why I think people kept inviting her to dinner and stuff, because she, she, she was so so entertaining. And um, and then uh, 
for some reason, her children, she had, a, I think, a, a daughter and a son, they, they weren't around much. I don't know what that was about. And uh, later, some years later, she developed cancer and um, had to have some substantial surgery and some intestine removed and so forth. And, and she wasn't funny anymore after that. It's like she never laughed again. And she, she went from being this very, very social person to never leaving the house. And my, a good friend of mine's mother would go over and see her and say, Norma, you have to stop this. Now, this is just very bad for you. Come, come on out with me. We'll go do this, such and such. But she, she couldn't. And she finally committed suicide. So her relationship to Dukkha could not change. She could not begin to experience herself differently, such that the pressure of Dukkha would not shape her whole behavior and experience of the world. So having heard Buddha's teaching, it's pretty important for us to put it into practice. do our best to just be ourselves as we study the self and come to know it as it is. And then uh, without uh, pride or affectation, we too can go up upon the mountain proclaiming peace. Well, to all of those who aren't here because of the nice weather, I have to say it's only 11 o'clock. There's still plenty of nice weather to enjoy. So you could have been here. I'm just saying. Of course, you won't hear that anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Maybe you have some question or comment. Yes, Shuji-san. Who's Lauren Stewart? Um, she was a um, Rinzai teacher. Uh, she was a uh, quite an accomplished concert pianist. And she was um, a student of, let me see, 
but one of the celebrated Rinzai teachers of the era. And so she kind of, kind of rather independently started teaching and um, drew the ire of some other teachers who said, well, I never heard that she was a Peruvian, but uh, her students thought she was good stuff. And my occasions of meeting with her and talking with her, I thought she was pretty cool. She, uh, she died of cancer. And uh, one of her students was present with her at the time. And uh, asked her, you know, how, how are you doing, teacher? And she said, she said, oh, uh, beautiful piece, nobody here. <laughs> Hey. I'm just curious, do you think that these monastics that were your teachers in boarding school would have regarded uh, Meister Eckhart as a heretic? Um, I can think of a couple of them who might have, but not all of them. Okay. Yeah, there would have been exceptions. And I know there's that particular mystic has a history that sometimes it goes this way, sometimes yeah. it goes that way, depending on someone's who's, point of view. Who's in charge or, yeah, right, right. Uh, yeah, I can think of a couple of them who probably would take a, you know, a hard line. Yeah. Well, his teaching was not approved. And, you know, Does that uh, go with the teachings of Ali C or something? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Although uh, some would point out, well, only some of his teachings, and the rest, a lot of it was greatly appreciated, but some of it was like, no, yeah, no, no that's yeah, too much. This stuff about the eye with which I see God is the same eye that, with which God sees me. Oh, no, no, that's too, that's something. <laughs> too far. <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, it's, um, it had never really come to me before when you were talking about you know, the edges being worn off and I always imagine like stones in the tumbler and they just get smoother and shinier and smoother and shinier. Like Toast is trying to polish the Zabuton here. Oh, nice. But, um, mm -hmm. I actually have a bone spur on my hip where there was a fracture and the muscle and tendon wears it down and makes it smooth for a while. And then that same wearing makes it sharp and exceedingly painful for a while. And then it mm. wears down to smooth again. And then mm. it wears into sharp again. And then it wears down into smooth. And that might be more and more accurate to, to my experience of mm. the process. Mm. Mm. It just was interesting that that came up. Yeah. Well, um... The, the smoothing, as I think of it, mostly affects how the entities fit together. So, you know, so that means, okay, so this, this sharp edge gets worn off and, and then this person 
fits much more gently and smoothly. That doesn't mean there aren't other edges that are still sticking out, but don't get addressed so much in that circumstance. So it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Oh, Jonathan. Yeah, I, uh, just in response to that exchange, I kind of, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, in some ways I could see yes, in some ways it gets smooth. Honestly, I think in some ways it can make them even sharper. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember um, in the last practice period, I, I did a Tazahara this year, so saying that at times practice brought out, but it would, he was joking, but he was also being honest. He said, brings up the worst in people. I mean, I think it yeah. brings up the best and the worst, or, or certainly can. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, speaking for myself, well, I, mean, so true. It, it, I don't know. Well, the other thing is it's a long process. So, uh, you know, it can take years. And if, if uh, you know, the, the, the time you have to give to that is, is relatively short, then the effects are probably relatively limited. Uh, but one advantage that um, monastic communities in the Western tradition have is that it tends to be for life. And so over a period of like 30 years, <laughs> some, some shaping happens and there is a genuine, as, as, as uh, St. Benedict called it, the conversatio mori, the conversion of you know, however you want to translate that word, but, but it's really a conversion of the body-mind happens. Yeah. But it's a long process. That makes sense. I mean, it makes me think, too. It's like, it seems that in Zazen practice, we, it's kind of hard not to notice how you're feeling. Yeah. So you feel the sharp edges, yeah. and then it makes you, you can't say, oh, I'm not feeling this, or sublimate it, or just stuff it away. You're no, like, no, not good. I really feel this. Yeah. And then it's a question of, well, how do you want it? deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to stuff it away? Well, that's probably not going to work. It's not going to work. Yeah. I, don't know. I don't know. It's hard to talk about. Patience. <laughs> well, uh... oh, yes. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to say, it seems to me that edges are a matter of viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So if somebody else sees the edges, it says something about that person as well as about yeah. the person with the edges. Yeah. And if it's you think of yourself, you have edges. Why is that? Do you have some idea about who you're supposed to be? Mm -hmm. And those edges don't conform to that? Or what? What exactly is going on? Yeah. So in some respects, I think edges can be a good thing. Uh, I mean, you don't want to be cut by one. <laughs> right? Right. Nobody likes to be cut by someone's edge. Right. You know, there's, there is, uh, you know, considerable mutuality involved. And um, uh, if, if I am kind of oppressed by my sense of having some edge, maybe I should talk to someone about it. Maybe they'll say, oh, you know, not really. You're, you're over, you're working that up. It's actually not, you're not so bad. It's another possibility. Um, today was supposed to be the parish council, but the parish is elsewhere. So I think we're not going to do that. And instead, we'll go out and celebrate Juneteenth and the slightly less warm weather. Thank heavens.
So uh, please, everyone, take care, take care of yourselves and take care of others. And I hope we meet again soon. Thank you very much.